Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. 
Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today I chat with Ronnie Lundy, author of Vittles, an Appalachian journey with recipes. We talk about pickled bologna and what most people get wrong about Appalachia. The mythology of Appalachia is that we are this monoculture. Um, the current iteration of this is that we're all Scotch-Irish and we're all irritated. Um, <laughs> and we are irritated, but mostly because everybody thinks we're all Scotch-Irish. Before my interview with Lundy, I chat with Mark Kolansky, well-known for his books such as Cod and Salt. Now in his latest book, Kolansky tells the story of milk. Mark, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Uh, well, I'm thrilled to talk to you. Um, I read Cod. That was my first Kurlansky book uh, a long time ago. Uh, and your latest book, Milk, I also found to be at least as interesting as Cod. So let's start at the beginning. I guess the Fulani people believe that the world started with a huge drop of milk. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of cultures have creation myths that involve milk. And I guess it's not surprising because milk is associated with childbirth. So it's a beginning of life. Well, but but some of the examples were great. The, the Norse legend, the huge frost ogre sustained by a cow made from thawing frost. Vishnu churned a sea of milk to create the universe. It, it was right. more... Don't Don't try this at home. <laughs> I can churn a glass of milk. I could just get a milkshake. Um, another thing you say is interesting is that, what, 40% of Chinese today drink milk? Yeah, which is interesting because that's actually the world average. About 40% of people in the world drink milk. About 60% of the people in the world are lactose intolerant. But, but the theory was, and you explain it, that you need lactase to digest lactose in milk. And the theory was Europeans do not have the gene that cuts off the production of lactase when you get older. Well, everybody is supposed to. Everybody, when they get to about two years old, this enzyme lactase is supposed to uh, stop working and then lactose becomes indigestible. Some people, and it tends to be Europeans, Middle Easterners, subcontinent, have a genetic mutation where this doesn't happen, and that's why they can drink milk. It's interesting that this mutation that we have is presented as normal, and the normal people are presented as having an illness. That's true. Actually, lactose intolerance is is what's supposed to be. Right. Um, You said there was just a shocking number. You said 1800. There was a Dublin hospital that had a 99.6% infant mortality rate. Yeah. I mean, what was called artificial feeding, feeding children animal milk, was not a widespread thing until the 18th century. And in the 18th and 19th century, it caused huge 
infant mortality rates just killed lots of children, especially in cities. And given the odds, I mean, in New York City, more than half of the people who died were under five years old, and most of that was from milk. So given that that was happening, isn't it extraordinary that people still went on giving kids milk because of this belief that you have to give children milk? Well, yes, and they also, you said in your book, that the prevailing theory about feeding children animal milk was they'd end up growing up stupid. Well, (laughs) I mean, I just thought that was pretty interesting. There there was this belief that a baby took on the characteristics of its milk source. So if you had a wet nurse who had a terrible temper, you'd get a bad-tempered child. If you fed that child goat milk, the kid would be very (laughs) sure-footed. Um, so in different places in the world, they use different, I mean, water buffaloes, Italy, camels, mare's milk. Uh, how about kumis? Uh, oh, my God. Yeah, I recently had some kumis. Oh, it's, it's horrible stuff. You want to explain <laughs> what it is? It's, uh, it's fermented milk in Mongolia, usually uh, horse milk, mare's milk. And it's left for a long time, you know, in a tent. You're supposed to stir it every time you come into the tent. And um, personally, a completely subjective opinion, it tastes terrible. <laughs> I, I once had some kumis that was made from camel's milk, and the camel kumis is more palatable than mare's kumis. Milking the mares is because they're kind of wild is, is kind of a hard thing to do, right? Yeah. Yeah, although milking camels isn't particularly easy either. <laughs> but Holstein's isn't so bad. Um, you also made made another point, which is obvious once you make it. The cheese, since it's salted and preserved, is really a safe way to consume milk, right? Yeah, and, and a lot of cultures, for instance, the Greeks and the Romans, that was the most common thing they did with milk. I mean, it was very rare to drink milk, but uh, they made cheese. You also said that with raw milk cheeses, the brie, for example, very much tastes like the terroir, as we talk about in wine. So exactly where it's from, the season, all of those things has a really strong impact on the cheese. Absolutely. And I I lived in Paris for about 10 years, and I bought my cheese, this very good uh, fromagerie, and... um, you know, we would talk about with each cheese, we would talk about, well, do you want the fall stuff? Do you want the spring stuff? And uh, with some cheeses, it makes a huge difference. Um, baked Alaska, you trace the origin of that. You said Jefferson liked to serve ice cream on a sponge cake with a lightly baked meringue on top. And eventually, I think Fanny Farmer refers to it as baked Alaska. But that's where that, I didn't realize that's where that came from. Yeah, I I believe she was the first one to call it Baked Alaska. They had similar names for it. And then the ice cream makers invented mid-19th century. You talk about Sundays. This was a little apocryphal story about the late 19th century. You said there was one ice cream store that only added toppings to the ice cream on Sunday. A girl comes in on a different day of the week, argues that this must be Sunday, hence the term Sunday. That sounds a little apocryphal to me. But... Yeah, I it, have trouble believing yeah, it. Yeah, that, that's a little <laughs> too cute. It, it yeah. seems that ice cream stories are particularly dubious. In the food world, the leading source of bogus stories is Marco Polo. Second is Catherine de' Medici. And I think third would be Thomas Jefferson. 
food stories that involve any of those names, you should take a second look at. So, so what's a good example of a, of a uh, Marco Polo story? Oh, that he introduced pasta to Italy? Oh. It's completely <laughs> completely absurd. There was pasta in Italy long before Marco Polo it was probably introduced by Arabs. Well, you, you do these books, and you're dealing with history all the time. And that's a question I have for you. When you start researching, how do you get at the truth? Oh, my God. That, that, I mean, that is the, the question of journalism, isn't it? How do you get at the truth, and how do you know which version is true. And sometimes you just have to give all the versions. Yeah, but if you're talking about the Nixon administration, for example, it's a little different than if you're talking about something that happened 500 years ago. You, you're, yeah, but you never know. Nixon might have slipped out a truth when no one was looking. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I won't touch that. Mark, a great pleasure. Thank you for another great book. Yeah, nice talking to you. That was Mark Kurlansky. His new book is called Milk a 10,000-year food fracas. You can subscribe and listen to Mill Street Radio anytime as a podcast. We release new shows every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and TuneIn. It's time to take a few of your calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you? Chris, I'm good. I, I think it's time to take some calls. What do you think? Open up the lines. Let's go. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Saki. I'm calling from Kalamazoo, Michigan. I think this is our first Kalamazoo caller. Yes, how nice. How are you? (laughs) How can we help you today? So my question is about different types of flour. I've been watching a baking show set in Europe that I imagine many of your listeners are familiar with. And the hosts and contestants often talk about ingredients like strong white bread flour or strong plain flour and then plain flour, which I assume is like all-purpose flour. But what do these mean and how do we translate this to an American grocery store where I'm looking at wheat flour or all-purpose flour or even self-raising well, flour? Well, first of all, the Brits say aluminium. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, you know. What does that have to do with well, anything Well, I, here? you know, it's just we don't speak the same language is what I'm trying no, to say. No, but they're good bakers. We speak American. They speak English. Well, I assume that a strong flour, a strong bread flour means a high gluten flour. Strong would, I think, relate to the gluten content. So a plain flour would be all-purpose flour. I actually think a plain flour has no rising stuff in it. So it's it's, so it's not self-rising? Not self-rising. They call it Fair. self-raising or something crazy like Very that. Very good. Yeah. So plain is without that extra stuff. But a strong bread flour would be a high gluten. I think we can agree on that. Again, I don't know, you know, percentage-wise, how they stack up next to each other. Well, in this country, gold medal, for example, is 10 to 11% gluten. But I believe that King Arthur is closer to 12%. So a high gluten all-purpose flour in this country, you go to King Arthur. Yeah. A bread flour is going to be running 13 to 14% gluten. So I would think a strong flour, if it said strong white flour, I would use King Arthur. All-purpose. And a strong bread flour would just be a... A bread flour. So let's ask you a question. On the show... When did they specifically refer to one of these strong flowers? The hosts have a master class where they'll talk about how to make different types of bread, for example, and they'll actually walk you through the steps. So I'm thinking about the episode about ciabatta, and they were talking through all the steps, and 
and now I don't remember which one it was, but I want to say it was strong white bread flour that they referenced. And I was yeah. like, what is that? And how do I find that? Well, ciabatta, you would want a strong flour and ciabatta has a lot of holes in it. And that mm-hmm. is because of the high hydration that is the high percentage of water, but also a high gluten flour will help with that. So I would just think a strong bread flour simply means bread flour, high gluten bread flour. Yeah. So why do you love the show? It's really fun. I, you know, I don't really care for reality shows, except everyone is so nice. It's not particularly dramatic, and I learn things, and then I come up with questions like, what's strong white bread flour? <laughs> and they've got a British accent, which makes it all the nicer. <sighs> I know. Everyone's so cute. <laughs> Saki, thank you very much. Yes. Hopefully that helps. Thank you for taking my call. Okay. Take care. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Beatrice from Naples, Florida. How can we help you? Um, I bake a lot, uh, and one of the things that I was interested in doing was making some royal icing. But I also have chickens, and so I don't buy my eggs. I just take the eggs that my chickens give me. And it says to only use eggs that have been pasteurized, and I don't know how to go about doing that with my own eggs or if it's really necessary or what. (laughs) You're going to get two very different answers here probably. First of all, I also get my eggs from uh, someone who actually works on the show who keeps chickens. The only problem with that is you really have to make sure they're clean properly. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they're like when you get your own, but make sure they're really well cleaned on the outside because that's where the contamination is going to come from. Okay. Secondly, I don't personally worry about raw eggs, but, and if they're, they're your own chickens, if you clean them well, I would think you're okay, but it is a risk. Now, to pasteurize them, okay. they have to get them up to that temperature of 160. But okay. I wouldn't worry about it. No, I wouldn't either. Okay. A supermarket eggs are very well cleaned. There's a film on the outside of an egg when you harvest it. Yeah, it definitely feels different. Right, and it protects the egg from air getting in to the egg. But the supermarket eggs, that's rinsed off, and then they re-oil them or they put something on the outside to protect the egg. But they're very, very well cleaned. Chris is right. It's the outside of the egg that really you need to make sure gets cleaned. You know, it's one of those things, you know, you, you want to say the over 80, the under 5, and the immune impaired perhaps should not have these eggs unless okay. they're taken to at least 160. But I think other than that, you know, you're fine. You know, just don't leave them out forever. And the good thing about your eggs is they're really fresh, which means they'll beat yeah. up beautifully because they are so fresh. All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Take care. Thank you, Beatrice. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a culinary question, please give us a call at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hi, this is Terry. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. How can we help you? Well, I remember hearing on your show, I think, a very simple recipe for a glaze or um, something to put on steak when you're grilling it mm-hmm. using pomegranate molasses. Right. And I've looked and looked to try and find something like that. So I'm wondering if you can give me some ideas of ways to use pomegranate molasses in very simple recipes like for grilling chicken or steak or even vegetables, anything like that. Yeah, you can. um, It's available in almost any supermarket now. Maimune, which is the brand we sell, we think is the best. How do you spell that? M-Y-M-O-U-N apostrophe E. And that's great. But for grilling, it probably doesn't matter. I would just brush it on either in the last 30 seconds of grilling. Straight up? 
straight up or as soon as it comes off the grill. You don't want it on very long because it'll burn. The other thing I do with pomegranate molasses is add a small amount to a vinaigrette or dressing. It's, as you know, is sweet and sour. and just adds tremendous depth to that. So those are two of the things I do with it. And just as an ingredient, sometimes I'll put a little in a stew just to add a little bit of depth, sort of a secret ingredient. Uh, any kind of meat stew, I find meat and pomegranate molasses go well together. Any beef stew, pork stew, lamb stew, um, at the end, you can put in a tablespoon of pomegranate molasses just to add a little depth to it. And nobody will know what it is, but it just adds flavor. It's like you're adding a little bit of sweet and sour. Yeah. I find it's probably one of the most useful pantry staples I have. If you want to make a dip of some kind, uh, it goes well in Greek yogurt. You can add a little bit to that along with some fresh herbs or other things, other spices. But I would say glazing and vinaigrettes and adding to stews are three things I do. Sarah? Uh, Yeah, all of that sounds good to me. I mean, for people who don't know what pomegranate molasses is like, it's a little bit like thick balsamic vinegar. What I might do for a glaze is combine it with a little bit of butter and some Dijon mustard and then just put it on in the end. Yeah. Maybe a little bit of garlic. Now you've Frenchified it. Of course I have. (laughs) That's what I do. (laughs) All right, Terry, thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. Yeah. Bye-bye. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my interview with Ronnie Lundy, author of Vittles, an Appalachian Journey with Recipes. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, Crusty bread, it's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. 
I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Ronnie Lundy spent years driving around Appalachia in search of the region's history, recipes, and traditions. Lundy's book, Vittles, recounts her journey, exploring everything from chili buns to a dozen different types of local beans. Ronnie, how are you? I'm well, Chris. How are you? I'm good. Um, Let's talk about Appalachia. What is it, an amalgam of a million different kinds of things? If you were to describe it, is there a way to describe it that makes sense, or is just too diverse? Um, the way to describe it to make sense is to accept that it's complicated and a moving target somewhat. Um, and in that, you can shape parameters around it, but those parameters sometimes shift also. Uh, the territory that I looked at ended at West Virginia, and it goes down into the northern edge of South Carolina, uh, the mountains of North Georgia and and Alabama, and of course, uh, Kentucky and Virginia and Tennessee and North Carolina. And if I left anybody out, please don't hurt me. Um, um, And so so even the geographic definition uh, can stretch and come together. Now, you, you drove, you had a van, right? Is that right? You're driving. I have a van. It's a Chevy Astro. There I you love go. it. <laughs> so, how many miles? How long? I mean, you set out to do this trip, this this uh, pilgrimage. Uh, what were you looking for, and how long were you doing it? 
honestly, I'm not sure what the mileage is. At one point, I said 4,000 miles. And then I started looking back at my records, and it's really a lot more than that. So it was quite, it was, it was very literally a journey. You know, the subtitle is An Appalachian Journey with Recipes. And that was important to me because a lot of what is written and has been written about um, the people and the culture and the foodways of Appalachia, well, a lot of it comes from one person's perspective and their family. But there are other experiences in Appalachia, and I wanted this book to reflect those as well. We hear the mythology of Appalachia is that we are this monoculture, um, the current iteration of this is that we're all Scotch-Irish and we're all irritated. Um, (laughs) And we are irritated, but mostly because everybody thinks we're all (laughs) Scotch-Irish. So there there are actually, uh, the last census, there are more people in southern Appalachia who identify as Latino or African-American than Hmm. there are who identify as being predominantly Scotch-Irish. And part of my point and, and my interest is that if you look at the foodways, you can start to pick apart this complexity and see all the strands of it and see how it comes together. And it will challenge uh, some of the assumptions that we've made, many of the assumptions that we've made about Appalachia. A perfect point to talk about food. So you, uh, you say chili buns carried out from the Dixie Pool Room wrapped snugly in red grease slicked wax paper were my favorite. <laughs> okay, so now and now now defend that. So so these were really good chili <laughs> buns or what? Oh heck yeah! <laughs> you know? And and let me let me explain. A, a chili bun is not a chili dog. That's the first thing to understand. There's no hot dog in it. It is a very fine grain, spicy chili mixture, hamburger mixture that is packed into a hot dog bun with onion and with um, mustard. And the texture is extremely important. It's not like a sloppy joe. It's it's not kind of slurping around in there. It's in there being um, firm. And the best way to think about this is this is this is a dish that was to my knowledge, born in the pool halls. And what you want to think about is if you're in that pool hall and, you know, the other guy's running the table and you need something to eat, you don't want something. You want chili on your hands, right? Yeah, you don't want to get something hot right. and, and that bad. But a little bit of grease won't hurt, you know? Might make your slide a little better. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about some more food. You, This really threw me. The Shack sweet and savory banana pudding. It had powdered gelatin in the custard. Okay, I can forgive you that. But has red miso <laughs> paste. Red miso. And a banana bread. Now, now mm-hmm. wait a minute. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a Milk Street thing. But you're throwing red miso into a savory banana pudding. What's going on? Mm. Well, we are being, first of all, true to the Appalachian palate. One of my mother's favorite terms about taking a food, a food that went from pretty good to, oh, yeah, yeah, buddy. Uh, <laughs> she would say it had a wang to it. And, Ooh, I, I, like and I think, join me, Chris, I'm campaigning to make that an official culinary term, a wang to it. What does wang mean? Well, I think that the best way to describe it is it is kind of this accent of sour and salty and maybe a little bit of sweet that just elevates whatever you're eating up to another level. It doesn't dominate, you know. It comes in underneath and it sort of raises it up. It's like a good 
bluegrass tenor singer. You know, you're listening to everybody else and they're working that straight and narrow, deep level. And then the tenor comes in and gives you chills down your back. And a wang does that when you're eating. So Ian Bowden, who was the chef who invented this, felt like, I mean, there's nothing wrong with traditional banana pudding. Oh, my gosh. But he felt like it just needed that wang to it. And he added red miso to it. So that's part one. But here's part two. Do you, Chris, by any chance know where the world's largest producer of organic miso is located and has been located for over 30 years? I'm going to guess it's not Asia, right? (laughs) In Appalachia somewhere. In the Midwest south of Appalachia, Rutherfordton, North Carolina. So these miso makers are probably about my age. And they were part of the counterculture that came into Appalachia and settled and had an impact on the foodways starting in the late 1960s. And they also represent an, an interesting botanical, biological fact is that there are regions of Appalachia that share certain characteristics with parts of Japan and parts of China that don't show up in in other places. Uh, Let's talk about beans um, and then apples. Well, the names are so great. So I'm going to read a list. I made a list. (laughs) The Gallagher, the Lens May, Nolts, Holy Land, Rose Beauty, Case Knife, Pink Tip, Greasy Spangler, Logan Giant, and the Doist Chambers, Greasy Cut Short. I just thought, wow, you know. So beans were obviously a very important part of the foodways. But these names are just fabulous. Well, and this is so Southern Appalachian to me. So first of all, beans are vital because you were using the pig in order to supplement. You were using it as seasoning. You weren't putting a big piece of meat on the table. And so the bean itself becomes the protein. So everybody planted beans. Everybody planted beans. Beans mutate spontaneously and easily, adapting to the sunlight and the mineral quality in the ground. It's the time of days, et cetera, et cetera, so that... I could give you my bean, and two years later, if you lived on the other side of the holler, you would be growing a bean from my bean seed that would have different characteristics. Mm. And so families and and people would name their beans after their family or after the region where it's grown. There's the Rogue Mountain that is uh, one of Bill Best beans. And then they would give them funny names, too, like there's the Lazy Wife bean, which Mm. is a, a Lazy Wife bean is always a bean with a large bean in it, a large bean seed in it, because when you think about it, you string it less. You get more bean for your for your work. Uh, apples. I didn't recognize a lot of these. Of course, there are thousands of varieties. The Jellyflower Sweet, the Summer Rambo, right. the Winter John, the Crow's Egg, the Bart, the Flathead Follow Water, and the Zesty Z. So, I assume the apples in the south, obviously in the north, the different uh, temperatures, they're designed uh, to be grown in sort of a different climate? Yeah. The history of the apples here, um, Jefferson sent many, 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 many apples into Appalachia because unlike the the deeper south, it has a wonderful spring, it has a, a good ripening summer, and then it has a cold snap 
that is what really brings out the flavor in apples. And apples kind of do the same thing that that the beans do, which is that they will adapt to their surroundings and, and, and mutate and create all these different apples. And so there are apple hunters, they're called, in the Appalachian region who have interviewed people and gotten descriptions and tasted apples when they could, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's thought that there were well over a thousand varieties uh, that were grown in Appalachia initially um, to make cider. But then um, the apples became a foodstuff, and it be- and it became a thing that you took pride in. Uh, your apple had a distinct flavor, and it has an impact on the food. The apple stack cake, which is made right. with dried apples, the really traditional way to do it is not to put spices into it. And the reason why is because your apple had a distinctive flavor, and that would come through. You know, I talk about my mother being able to teach my sister and me just by looking which green beans to load up on at the family reunion because she knew who grew and cooked the best ones, and you could tell by sight. And so you could tell by taste uh, at one time somebody's apple stack cake because you knew their apple. So let me just mention a few recipes. Sure. Uh, Pickled bologna with peppers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Come on now, become... tell me about that one. Oh, wow. Well, that's, um, uh, I met a woman was doing that, Wendy Johnson, and then I kind of took off with the fundamental recipe that she had and, and made it uh, more elaborate. And it echoes those big jars of pickled bologna that were just such a treat and a signifier in the mountains of good times. You know, if you could afford to have the, the grocer chop off a piece of pickled bologna, you were doing well. And so we came up with this homemade version of it. And uh, Chris, that has been, for the last year and a half, I've been traveling around talking and doing dinners. You know how folks will do a dinner based on your book. And that recipe is the single most popular one with contemporary chefs. Um, They love it. They love it. (laughs) And the audience loves it. It's great. (laughs) Uh, And a sweet potato sonker. Now, I've I've researched this at one time or another. There are lots of origins or maybe origins for that term. Could you describe what it is (laughs) and what it means? So the North Carolina, the the version of Sankar that this is based on, which is the one made around Mount Airy, North Carolina, is actually a cobbler that is larger than a normal cobbler. And it has a dough on the bottom and a dough on the top. And then it has what's called milk dip, which is a warm milk sugar concoction that when you take the Sankar out of the oven, you pour that over the top and it seeps into it. I expect that in foodie heaven someday, there will be an entire room that is just devoted to people loudly arguing about what's the difference between a cobbler and a sonker and a, a Betty and a crisp and, you know, all the all the terms. The things that you can get three people in a room and get five opinions, right? Exactly. <laughs> so what's happening to Appalachia now? Is it is it a million different stories is it going back to find its foodways and roots? Obviously, you're involved with that. Uh, and it's going to keep some of the past, or is it like most of the rest of America, we just keep moving into the future? Um, well, Appalachia, I, I won't say more than, you know, there are other regions, there are other cultures that value their past. Because of our storytelling history, which I was going to cite as another reason why we name our beans, because then we can tell you the story about it. And there's nothing we love better than a story 
unless it's eating and they're both kind of in the same realm. So Appalachians are, young Appalachians are very keen to embrace their history. And a couple of things have changed in the economic landscape. There is the absence of coal, which is, of course, being argued about now, but uh, at the time that I wrote the book, was perceived as a done deal. And in the wake of that, communities are looking to establish smaller economies that are interlaced with one another and therefore sustainable. So food becomes a piece of that. You know, food becomes a piece of something that can be produced to be sold elsewhere, but can also feed you and your family. It becomes a gathering place for the people in the community. Food is a, a way to to create a tourism economy. And farming can become a way to continue to stay on the land and continue that tradition. So we are, as we have always been, in an interesting moment in Appalachia. Um, And I, I just feel incredibly fortunate to get to ride around in my Chevy Astro and write about it. It's pretty fun. (laughs) Ronnie, thank you so much. Uh, Fascinating book. And, uh, it's just nice when someone takes the time and the years and the hours to really to really do the research and uh, find out what's actually going on. Ronnie, thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. That was Ronnie Lundy. Her book is called Vittles, an Appalachian Journey with Recipes. You know, growing up in Vermont, the locals had a keen sense of place. One family named their street Tudor Road, and the next week, neighbors across the way put up a sign, Skidmore Boulevard. Every hill and valley was named for a reason. Minister Hill, Swearing Hill, Southeast Corners Road, and Bear Mountain. Appalachia takes its names seriously, too. Logan Giant and Greasy Cut Short are the names of Appalachian beans. Today, things are named by marketing directors. In Appalachia, names tell real stories about real people in a real place. And some lucky people even get to call it home. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with editorial director J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, Pesto Genovese. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. Today, it's Pesto Day. It is. uh, And many of us in the food world have made it 18 different ways over time, but it never is anything like what you get in Italy. And I always thought that was, well, okay, their basil's better than ours. But you went to Italy to figure this out, to Genoa. And I guess it turns out it's not just the ingredients, it's how you make it. It is, it is. And, you know, one of the, the most important lessons, as always, was that we do everything wrong. First of all, our ratios of ingredients are way off. In Genoa, garlic is almost an afterthought in pesto. In the United States, it tends to be a very dominant flavor, but it's really supposed to be more like salt and just heighten the other flavors. We don't use nearly enough basil. They tend to use it by the bushel. We tend to be much more minimalist with that. And we use way too much olive oil. They use much less. And that's because they thin their pesto with the pasta cooking water, which, of course, produces a thicker, more luxurious sauce. We think we have to thin it beforehand. That doesn't work. I also learned that we get the order wrong. And the order in which you add the ingredients to either a mortar or a pestle, or in our case, into a food processor, really matters because if you put the basil, for example, in too soon, you're going to over-process it or over-pulverize it. And that's going to give you the wrong finished consistency. So your goal here is to get a pesto that's pretty dry. It's not a green sauce. Right? It's dry. Exactly. It's actually spreadable when it's before it's been married to pasta. And we think of it 
as a sauce before it ever touches the pasta, but really, if it's that loose, then you've added too much olive oil. And in Genoa, pesto isn't considered done until it's been added to pasta with some of the pasta cooking water. Then it's considered pesto, and then it's considered complete. But that's why I say we add way too much olive oil. We think it's supposed to be thinner in an earlier state. So what's the order of the ingredients? Okay. The order is very important, again, because you don't want to overprocess the ingredients. So you start out with the garlic, the pine nuts, and the salt, and you're going to reduce that to a nice fine paste that is easily distributed through the pesto. Then we add our cheeses. You want them finely ground. You add those in, and again, you add those to the pine nuts and the garlic, and you make a nice, smooth consistency with a little bit of granularity from the cheese. Now the basil goes in. But one of the things we learned is that we couldn't just dump the basil in like they do in Italy. The reason is they use smaller, more tender basil, and they're able to just pulse it a few times, and it's done. Our case, most of the basil we find at the grocery store tends to be kind of bigger and a little bit hardier. And we had trouble getting it to the right consistency without overprocessing it and turning it into a watery puree. But the solution actually was pretty simple. We just chop it up by hand on the cutting board and then add it to the food processor, give it a couple of pulses, and we're done. I would assume anyone in Genoa who uses a food processor to make this is probably persona non grata. So is this as good as what you had in Genoa? Well, it lacks the romance of bashing it with a mortar and pestle. But I would say we are 95% of the way there. We modified it enough with the order that we are getting really close. And I've got to say, it is delicious. So, Jam, pesto alla Genovese, converted to the food processor, 95% as good, at least, as the real thing. Thanks, Jam. Thank you. You can get this recipe for pesto alla Genovese at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, my co-host Sarah Malt and I will be taking more of your calls. Are you ready? I am, Chris. I am so ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Megan from Seattle. Hi, Megan. How can we help you today? I have a question about risotto and the size of the pan I should be cooking it in in terms of the surface area and the rice. Do I want the rice cover? Like, do I want there to be a single layer of rice in the pan, or do I want it to be stacked at all? Well, interesting you should ask this question, because for years I always cooked it in a saucepan, you know, which was straight sides and Mm -hmm. sort of stacked, like you said. But um, I had Mm -hmm. a wonderful young woman work on my last cookbook, Home Cooking 101, and I asked her to contribute a recipe, and she'd spend her junior year in Italy, and she'd learned to make risotto. So she did a very unique risotto, but she cooked it in a large skillet. And she said that's what mm-hmm. they did. And so now I've sort of changed my opinion. Chris. Well, our editor, J.M. Hirsch, was just in Italy getting risotto lessons near Milan or in Milan from Milanese, which has saffron in it. Yeah. And they cook it in about 10 minutes. They cook it very fast, mm-hmm. 10 or 15 minutes. They don't do the long, slow thing. Plenty of starch comes out of the, to create a creamy sauce. And so the whole notion of this 30-minute low and slow is just complete nonsense. That's not how they cook it. What kind of pan? It's a wider pan. Like a skillet. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. But this whole low and slow doesn't really... That's fascinating. ...doesn't matter. Stirring all the time? No, they start off stirring, and then uh, they just let it cook and stir occasionally, so you don't have to stir constantly either. Let me guess. Is this recipe going to be in the magazine? It already is. Oh, dear. I didn't look at my last issue Uh-oh, carefully. Oh, Sarah. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. So You've it's... been reading Bon Appetit again, I can no, tell. No, well, I may do that, too. <laughs> That's okay. So which issue is it in? September, October. Yeah, sure. okay. Yeah. I would say a larger surface area is a good thing. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Thanks, Megan. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. Take care. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Chrissy from Sturbridge. Hi, how are you? How can we help you? I'm good. My question is about sesame seeds. My friend recently had her baby, and then when she went to the doctor, she found she was allergic to sesame seeds now all of a sudden. When we love making hummus together, we also like cooking a lot of Asian dishes with sesame oil. So we're trying to figure out, okay, what do we do now to replace the sesame component in in hummus and also for the sesame oil? Is she allergic to nuts or just sesame? To the actual sesame seed. So almonds, you know, an almond butter would be okay, for example? Almond butter, I think, would be okay. The hummus, I think, was a little bit easier of a question. We also heard that if you use ice cubes, potentially, that could help with the smoothness. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's also a flavor issue, though, I think, a little bit. Right. Yeah. Uh, Like a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, (laughs) um, I agree. I think almond butter would be great. 
or some other nut butter. Yeah. Right? As for the component in Asian cooking, you could try toasted pumpkin seed oil. Oh, it's, okay. It's a wonderful ingredient, and it's, it's dark, and it's just yummy, and I think that okay. would work. It's a good idea. It's very strong, okay. though. So, you know, be, like toasted sesame seed oil, be careful with it because it can take over. Okay. But it, I think that would be wonderful, and it's more readily available than it used to be. It's one of those ingredients that people are discovering. Toasted pumpkin it's seed pumpkin. oil. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's perfect. I will try that. Thank you for calling, Chrissy. Okay. Thanks, Take Chrissy. Care. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Bye now. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. It's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. We're big fans of North Africa's sweet mint tea, so here's a recipe. Combine four teaspoons gunpowder green tea, four teaspoons sugar, and one ounce fresh mint sprigs. Add a cup and a half of boiling water, steep for five minutes, swirling occasionally to dissolve the sugar, then strain into glasses. You can find this recipe at MilkStreetRadio.com. Next up, we'll find out what Dr. Aaron Carroll is thinking about today. Dr. Aaron Carroll, how are you? I'm good. How are you? So are you going to scare me today or you're going to tell me it's okay? I think we're going to go with more of an it's okay or hopefully it's going to be better soon kind of thing. <laughs> okay. I thought we could talk about how the WHO has just taken steps to try to encourage the entire world to ban trans fats, uh, something which certainly has not happened before. Um, we've seen local trans fat bans, and in fact, a lot of countries, including the United States, have just recently got on board with this. Uh, but it's still a major problem worldwide, and it's good to see organizations like the WHO take steps to try to make everyone's food healthier. So trans fats have an interesting history in the United States. If you go back to the 1950s, there was a real push to try to get people to eat more vegetable fats than animal fats. Uh, this was because people just thought inherently they were safer. Unfortunately, most vegetable fats are liquid, and people did not enjoy using them, especially spreading them on bread. So we hydrogenated them. We made them trans fats. That's how we wind up with sort of margarine, um, and that there was big sort of margarine butter wars that I believe we've discussed before. But... By the mid-2000s, there was a significant amount of research, including a sort of a seminal paper in 2006 that showed that for every 2% increase in calories that you got from trans fats, your chance of having a heart disease increased by 23%, which is just unfathomably large. So by 2006, the FDA had actually required manufacturers to start labeling food to show if it had trans fats. By 2013, it had tentatively started to say the trans fats could no longer be considered safe to eat. By 2015, it said, hey, by 2018, let's get rid of trans fats that we're adding to, to all food in the United States, and that should happen pretty much any day now. Um, and that should work. There's been some real significant research. Uh, in fact, in New York State, um, where they got rid of trans fats much earlier, they, they ran a number of studies. And one of them showed that uh, regulations which reduced trans fats may have reduced the cardiovascular death rate by 4.5%. There was another study that, that showed that hospital admissions for heart attacks and strokes in counties where trans fats had hmm. been restricted were actually 6% lower than counties in New York where they hadn't. Other countries have also moved to do this. Denmark became the first country to actually eliminate them in 2004. And there's research in Denmark that shows that this has probably dropped the mortality rate from cardiovascular disease by more than 14 deaths per 100,000 person years, which is a really significant amount. Unfortunately, while we've seen a lot of this in developed nations, 
it's been much slower to occur in many countries which are on the poorer end of the socioeconomic spectrum. Uh, in North Africa, in South Asia, especially in the Middle East, a lot of partially hydrogenated cooking oils containing trans fats are still used, both in home cooking, in cooking from vendors that people might uh, buy from on the street, and even from restaurants. And that trans fat is likely responsible for about half a million mm premature deaths from cardiovascular disease every year. This is so significant that while the number one and number two causes of, of death worldwide used to be respiratory infections and birth defects, um, in the last 20 years, ischemic heart disease and cerebrovascular disease, both of which, of course, are cardiovascular disease, are the number one and two killer in the world now. Um, and it's thought that these two things occur for about 75% of deaths mm -hmm in low and middle income countries. And the WHO's call is to recognize that this is a significant worldwide problem. So uh, when you say trans fat, what is being transformed in the fat? Is this a molecular mm -hmm. change in the nature of the fat? It's actually, it's, it's hydrogenation, which means really we're just adding at its basic level, hydrogen molecules to the fats. Uh, and when that occurs, one, it causes liquid fats to become solid, which makes them easier to transport, easier to cook with. Trans fats have a, a particular, what people call mouthfeel. Like, we like them. They taste good. It's what used to make movie popcorn taste so good. It's what used to make many fried foods taste so good. And it's been very difficult to try to get that same sort of mouthfeel with non-trans fats, although people have now started to come pretty close. Uh, but it, adding these extra hydrogens on um, actually makes the fats more unhealthy, whether it's because they're bonding differently inside of blood vessels, they increase the amount of plaque, uh, they increase the, the rates of heart disease, they increase the rates of death. They occur in very small amounts in animal products uh, and some natural foods, but the vast, vast, vast majority of trans fats that we consume are things that we created in a lab. They're not necessary. So you and I have talked about the relationship between cholesterol and heart disease, and it's, it's less direct correlation than maybe we thought. Is trans fat cholesterol, or is it just a separate category of problem. It's, I, it's so trans fats are even worse when it comes to cholesterol because what they do is they actually increase people's levels of bad cholesterol and simultaneously decrease people's levels oh. of good cholesterol. <laughs> Great. So you get this one-two whammy punch where they are the worst thing you could do. And we've had, we've talked about sort of unsaturated fat versus saturated fat and, you know, the differences between those. Uh, and absolutely, we could have a robust debate about the relative dangers of saturated versus unsaturated fat, that, that I think even some people who truly emphasize that saturated fat is a problem, you know, the science behind that is not nearly as strong as they'd like it to be. I can't make that argument with trans fats. I mean, the, the evidence is sort of so overwhelmingly bad that it's very difficult to defend the continued use of trans fats, especially since, unlike with the, the debate about saturated or unsaturated fat, we're making most of them in a lab. This is not something that sort of is naturally occurring in the foods that we would otherwise normally eat. We sort of cooked up this problem, and now we recognize it's there, and we probably should just unlearn the lesson and, and stop using so many of these things. So it is... Uh, it, it's an avoidable problem, and it's going to take some effort to try to remove these things. And unfortunately, as you know, the WHO has no power to enforce this kind of ban. It's just the first sort of major worldwide push, uh, and it will be 
necessary to try to get governments locally on board to try to do this, but it's probably one of the most significant things that many of these countries could do to try to reduce people's health risk from cardiovascular disease. I'm not eating trans fats anymore after this phone call. Nope. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Anytime. Dr. Aaron Carroll is professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. Early in the show, I spoke with Mark Kurlansky, author of Milk. In Milk, he talks about Vishnu stirring a sea of milk to create the universe. But there are, in fact, other myths about food. In China, a giant was born from an egg after 18,000 years. The whites became the heavens, the yolk became the earth. In Papua New Guinea, a man who murdered his wife was killed by villagers and buried. A plant unfurled from his head a coconut, which was as thick-skulled as the man himself. In the Peruvian Amazon, the chili pepper was born from a giant ogre who enjoyed eating local villagers. I guess that storytelling just ain't what it used to be. That's it for this week's show. If you missed our show or just want to listen again, you can download the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Please remember to subscribe to the show. That way you'll get every episode downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please head on over to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the new season of our television show, subscribe to our magazine, or order our new book. It's called Milk Street Tuesday Nights, more than 200 simple weeknight suppers that deliver bold flavor fast. And if you never want to miss a new recipe or idea, please follow us on social. You can find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and also on Twitter and Instagram at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzava. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak, and production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugertz. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis, and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.